Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name's Claire Clark, and I'm one of the hosts of the channel. And I'm here today talking to Charles Allen McCoy about diseased states, Epidemic Control in Britain and the United States. Alan, welcome to the show. Hi. <laughs> I wonder if you could begin our interview by telling us just a little bit about yourself. So where did you go to school? Um, who were your mentors? Certainly. Um, so I went to school, um, did my graduate work at University of Virginia. Um, and my, I guess my main mentor there was um, the comparative historical sociologist, uh, Christian Kumar, um, he, he's done uh, work on on states and governments and, and most recently empires, um, and so um, you know I, I was there at UVA and I became interested in um, comparative historical work, um, and particularly the idea of uh, you know how states are formed and you know how to become you know the large powerful organizations we you know we know of them today. So how did your work um, on this book, Disease States, grow out of that graduate training? Yeah, sure. So, or did it? Maybe it was totally different. <laughs> no, 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 it, it, it was in a way. So, so what I would generally say is that within uh, comparative historical work, a lot of it is done on, you know, governments and states. Um, and there's a kind of a long steer, a longstanding theory um, in uh, what's called state formation theory, which is called the, the bellicose theory. Um, and basically what it does is it says that, you know, warfare, uh, the need to defend the nation militarily and the need to extract resources uh, for the military is basically one of the primary sources of how uh, the government and the state uh, grows, you know, how it develops and how it becomes you know, a big, powerful organization. And th- this is the work done by, um, most notably, uh, Charles Tilly and, and Norbert Elias. Um, and I think, you know, I, I, I think it's a really good theory. It's very, you know, it's very impressive. And, and to me, it makes a lot of sense. 
uh, when I was looking at the theory, it kind of reasoned that, you know, it, it can't just be warfare. It can't just be the threat of, of military war that, you know, that, that, that the state has to respond to. But there must be other states. Uh, there must be other threats. Um, and so one of those threats would be, you know, a biological threats. So, you know, outbreaks, disease, um, you know, things of that nature. And so, you know, I became interested in that way of thinking about how does, you know, how does the government respond to these other threats? You know, how does the government respond to biological threats? And how does that develop the state and grow the state in ways that the response to warfare and the military doesn't? Um, so generally speaking, you know, the military, you know, will increase what's called the extensive power of the state. You know, it will increase its territory, kind of the breadth of, of, of how much land and territory the state has control over. Whereas, you know, when you have to deal with a biological threat, what you have to do is, in some sense, get more into the everyday lives of your citizens, right? You now actually have to start to care about them in a way that you might not have before to the same degree. And so you have to, you know, you have to now, you know, see if they're healthy and see if they're, you know, what, what you know, what it, get more involved in their everyday lives. And so this is kind of basically what's called the intensive power of the state, you know, how much the state um, manages its citizenry and is able to kind of um, use its population. Um, and so that really, in some sense, got me interested. It's kind of just thinking about a different way uh, that the state uh, has to respond to threats and, and how um, those responses, you know, develop and grow the state. Except, of course, in your book, um, you know, you really talk about how the response in the United States does does resemble warfare quite a bit. Yes. Um, and I, I wondered if you yeah. could give us a, a <laughs> I wonder if you could give us a, a brief overview of what you call um, you sort of set up the very beginning um the or what you call the origins and destinies of the public health systems in um, in Britain and the U.S. and so they both had these sort of different origin points and and you argue really you or demonstrate really you know in a compelling way that that these origins sort of set the course for um, for what they look like today. Yeah, and then, and, and I guess that's you know the heart of the argument of the book. Right. So, the, you know, the idea that origins um, become destiny, that the, the starting conditions of an institution like disease control, like disease control, shapes its overall development well into the future. And, you know, is can it help under help us understand what it looks like today? Um, so I guess to, you know, kind of give an understanding of, you know, um, what that all means, you know, what does it mean to say that origins become destiny? Uh, what I would say is the book was interested in kind of three main questions. Um, and so the first question is, you know, why did uh, Britain begin to respond to outbreaks of disease um, earlier than the U.S.? Right. So we see that, you know, Britain um, responds to diseases like yellow fever, cholera, not not so much yellow fever, but cholera uh, earlier in the 19th century. Uh, whereas the U.S. only does this, you know, later, much later in the century. And so the basic question is, you know, why, or, you know, why does the U.S. lag behind um, Britain in this way? Um, and so to answer that question, um, the, one of the main concepts of the book is what's called a, a response formation cycle of disease control. 
And so the basic idea of this is that it's kind of a, a positive feedback loop. So sometimes um, historians have looked at um, the growth of public health and the growth of disease control and looked at these so-called kind of watershed moments, right? So an example of this is um, Edwin Chadwick and his um, 19, 1842 report um, you know, on disease control and how this really spurred development. And, you know, and so all, sometimes it's kind of uh, described as if, you know, okay, something, you know, this report's written and then suddenly something happens and there, there is this kind of moment, you know, a historical moment or event that produces something. Um, but what I guess I would say is the argument of the book is, you know, that's not really how it works in terms of disease control um, institutionalization. That rather there is this kind of uh, positive feedback loop that can sometimes actually be kind of slow moving. Um, and so the idea of a positive feedback loop um, in terms of response and information of disease control is that, okay, so a, a locality like a city or a state or, you know, some area will experience an outbreak of disease and, and, and they do something to respond to it. You know, they have some ad hoc measures. You know, they start to clean the streets or they set up a hospital or they form, you know, a board of health to kind of just deal with the problem. And so then the idea is that, well, these momentary tactics can sometimes, not necessarily, but sometimes become more longer term techniques of disease control. Right. You know, these tactics become techniques. You know, the local board of health sticks around, you know, it becomes something permanent. Um, you know, reports are written, you know, rules and laws are developed. And so that what happens is, you know, the immediate response becomes, you know, a more long-term long formation of disease control. But then what happens is that more long-term formation then helps the locality, the city, respond to the next outbreak, right? It allows them to do something more effective. And then that produces more tactics. And, and then the cycle continues, you know, you know, then you have this kind of, you know, cycle of response, information, response, information that kind of grows up uh, the development of disease control. And so in some sense, the question is not why it suddenly happened sooner in Britain than America, but rather why was this cycle, uh, this feedback loop, why was it activated earlier in Britain uh, than, in, uh, than in the U.S.? And so, you know, the book argues that, you know, there's a, there's a few, yeah, go ahead. No, no, go, you, go, go ahead. Let's, um, I, okay, I want to sure. get into the case of Britain in just a second here, but yeah. yeah. But I would say in general, it's a, the book argues that there's four different reasons, you know, four causes, you know, it's, it's state centralization, how centralized the state is to respond, whether the state has a theory of disease, you know, what it knows, you know, has an idea of like what's causing it, even if it is incorrect. Um, whether it imagines its citizenry as what's called a social body. And then lastly, whether there's pressure from outside groups kind of pushing the state to do something. And so the basic argument is that the, you know, these conditions existed earlier in Britain uh, than, the, than they existed in the U.S. And, and so let's, let's, let's talk about them in Britain. Sure. Um, so you say Britain, Britain focused on sanitation because it began with a miasmatic understanding of disease. So, so this is the miasma theory of disease, that disease is, is caused by filth. Um, yes. So I wondered if you could tell us a little bit ab about that and then how 
Britain responded when germ theory became dominant in the late 19th century. So in other words, Britain's public health system was based on this one understand this understanding of disease miasma theory that then turned out to be wrong. Yeah. Um, but they didn't it's, just give it its up. origin was already fixed. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So, so tell us a little bit about, about um, how you interpret uh, the rise of germ theory. Sure. Um, so in, I'll, in I'll, I'll begin with the first part a little bit and then, and then definitely can jump into germ theory. Um, so, the way I would get into this is I would say, so a kind of another key question of the book is not just that Britain and the U.S. Um, responded at different times, but they also responded in different ways, right? So even when, even after the U.S. did start to respond um, to outbreaks of disease, you know, they developed different styles. So Britain uh, developed kind of a more a style of disease control that was focused much more on sanitation and then progressing to focus on the social conditions and economic conditions of the working classes, whereas um, the U.S. responded with um, more kind of a quarantine style that focused on isolating uh, the potentially infectious and um, border controls, you know, keeping the infectious out of the country. And so the big, another big question of the book is, like, you know, why? You know, why did they not just respond at different times, but why did they respond in different ways? And so the answer is, you know, some of it is, is part of the medical theory of disease that they started with. And so we see that Britain responding, you know, with this kind of sanitation focus because it had it began in, in the early part of the 19th century with this kind of miasmatic theory of, of disease, right? That, um, you know, disease is caused by filth. Essentially, you know, there was different versions of it, um, you know, rotting material, gases released into the air, but that really disease is an environmental condition, right? It, it's coming out of a filthy, unclean environment. And so that's the that's the understanding that really Britain started with um, in the early part of the 19th century. And from that, you know, they developed a, a sanitary focus, right? They, they said, OK, well, if disease is from rotting material and filth. Then what we have to do is we have to we have to clean, right? We have to be more sanitary. We have to clean the streets, and then this became not just kind of a cleanliness of the streets. It became an improvement of the people, right? It became a way to lift up the working classes to make their lives more cleanly in it, in not just a physical sense, but also just kind of maybe in what we might say in a social sense. The U.S. focused. In a different way, you know, so it, it was associated yeah. with it was associated with it was associated with the welfare state, right? Yeah, is like a key, a key. Yes. Point. So that's the, the so there's two main causes for why they develop in different ways. So one is the theory of medical theory of disease, and then the other is where disease control is located within the state system. And so within Britain, it's not just that they have miasma, but they also place disease control within the welfare sector of the state. Right. Um, you know, it's connected to the Board of Governors, you know, this kind of early 19th century uh, welfare system uh, that was part of the New Poor Law. Uh, the New Poor Law was also written by Edwin Chadwick, which is the person who was also, you know, writing these documents about uh, public health. And so it's it's that, you know, it became a medical theory disease connected with a 
a organization located within a certain sector of the state. And that these two things actually went hand in hand, right? That, you know, it wasn't that miasma and welfare sector of the state were separate. They actually connected and fitted into each other to pre, to help create this joint understanding of what, how to respond to disease that was, you know, came to be sanitation, social conditions, lifting up the working classes. Does that make sense or? No, that, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Um, I, and then, I and then the U S responds in a, in a different way. To <laughs> um, do you want to talk a little bit, you want to talk about the U S as, as well, or should we, yeah. should we talk a little bit about sort of lens as a sociologist, which would you like to do? First? Um, maybe I could, ju- I could jump into the, the U S and then, you know, I can, I'm, ha- and I'm happy to answer that question about germ theory. And I, I think there's a way to get there. Yes. With talk yeah, about, let's do talk and in the U.S. I think compare because I think right because I, that makes sense. So yeah. so we get to this 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 is the origin point for the U.S. Right is the emergence of germ theory. Right. And so the, so so part, the first part of the argument is okay they develop at different times, but it's not just that they develop at different times, but their different timing of their development then goes on to shape how they respond. And so, okay, so Britain responds earlier in the 19th century. Because of that, they they have this miasmatic theory. They responded with sanitation. They place the disease control within the welfare sector of the state. The U.S. responds later in the, in the 19th century, around the 1880s, roughly. Um, because of that, now they have a new theory at their disposal, germ theory. And so this germ theory of disease, right, that disease is caused by these microscopic organisms in people's bodies, puts them down a different path. It suggests to them, okay, it's not sanitation, it's not the environment that's a problem, it's people's bodies. You know, it's not that we have to clean the streets, now we have to control the potentially infectious. And so that becomes, you know, a, a major kind of focus of the U.S., system of disease control, kind of a, this kind of quarantine style of isolating people, controlling the borders. And this is also linked to its own placement of disease control within the sector of the state, now placed within the military, not the welfare sector of the state. And so again, they go together, right? This kind of germ theory disease becomes connected to the military sector of the state that produces this kind of a, uh, a joint way of understanding. And the military is also focused on border control, right? Keeping out external threats, controlling, potentially controlling humans who are a threat to the nation. And so, again, what happens is that germ theory connects with this kind of organizational location of the military to produce this kind of uh, generalized approach to disease control, which is more quarantine, focused on the infectious and, and, and focused on, you know, border control. The interesting thing that happens is that, you know, what does Britain do when germ theory comes along, right? It, you know, you know, germ theory is, is you know, it doesn't ignore it. Um, it can't just stick with, you know, this theory of miasma. You know, eventually germ theory uh, becomes accepted not just in America, but, you know, in Europe, you know, and, and within Britain. And so the interesting thing to, to, to see is that even though Britain, 
comes to accept germ theory, even though it says, okay, yeah, you know, germ theory is a valid theory, you know, this miasma thing, you know, that's not really working. Um, it's already invested in its sanitary approach. It's already for 50 to 60 years, it's already kind of done, you know, gone this sanitary style of disease control. It can't simply give it up. Right. Even if the theory is different, it can't suddenly just change itself radically, changes to itself to a new approach. Uh, there's too many barriers to change. It's already invested too much. And so the interesting thing what that happens is rather than a changing its uh, style of action in terms of disease control, it modifies and adapts germ theory. It makes it work. Right. It says, OK, yes, there are these things called germs. There are microscopic organisms that are there out there that, that infect people. What does this suggest to us? This suggests that things are dirty. Right. The water is dirty. Right. You know, this is its explanation of, of cholera and cholera germ. Right? It says, oh, well, the cholera, the micro cholera germ is shows us that water is dirty and we have to clean even more. And so what it does is it takes this theory, germ theory, and adjusts it and adapts it so that it can work and fit in with its existing sanitary approach. So there's not really like a scientific revolution. <laughs> um, you know, there's interesting. It's, 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 it, there, there was a guy, and I, I think his last name is Stevens, actually. And he was a historian, a British historian. And he said that, Britain had what he called the sanitary syndrome, uh, which is that it couldn't give up on sanitation. And, and other people have actually argued this. Um, uh, War Boys, another British historian, he said, yeah, you know, Britain didn't have <laughs> didn't have the revolution of germ theory uh, like America had. Uh, America could just jump on that train. Right. You know, germ theory didn't have some previous theory that it needed to uh, uh, deal with. It could just jump on the germ theory train. What Britain had to do is say, oh, well, we're already on the sanitation train. We're already on the miasma train. We can't get off it. You know, even if we wanted to, we couldn't just get off it. And so but we can't ignore the theory of germs. So we're going to have to kind of just make it work. Um, It's not it's not that they didn't have a scientific revolution. Uh, they did, you know, germ, they, you know, they, they came to accept it. It was a, a, a massive shift uh, in its view of understanding of disease. Uh, but it, it, but it, it, it wasn't as if they could just give up what they had before. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. 
Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Here's where I wondered if you could say um, a little bit more about how your training as a sociologist informed your interpretation of histories of medicine and public health. Because I think if historians of medicine were to pick up this book, and I would encourage them to do so, they would see a lot of familiar um, secondary sources. Yes. Um, and you, you are Right. Um, no, a and, lot. And so, um, yes. So, I, anyway, so I wondered if you could just just tell us a little bit about what your lens as a as a historical sociologist, um, yeah, give you know uh, brings to your interpretation. Yeah, certainly. So, a little bit of a background is you know within sociology anyway, um, you know, there's this long-standing debate uh, about what is the difference between comparative historical sociology and history, right? And, and, you know, there's been this kind of, you know, what is, what is comparative historical sociology even adding? Like, you know, what, what, why, why bother doing this, you know, when we already have this thing called history, uh, which is, you know, older and, you know, it, you know, it has this, you know, reputation. Um, and, and so, um, you know, there's certain arguments that go back and forth and it's a long-standing debate, which I'm not going to, you know, I don't have to get into right now. But what I would argue is, you know, in terms of my own work is, so a couple of things, right? So the first thing I would argue is what I'm doing in this book is I'm not giving some new history of, of disease, uh, the experience of disease in Britain and the U.S., or even the, the formation of disease control in, in these two countries, right? And, you know, the lot of the work that I uh, use has been covered before. Right. You know, there, you know, I do cite a lot of the secondary sources. And in addition, I also, you know, really try to get into the primary sources and really, you know, get my hands on, you know, the, the documents themselves and, and the, you know, the raw material, so to speak. So I'm not trying to add a new history. I don't have some new documents. I don't have some new discovered, you know, reports or something like that. Um, but in some sense, what I'm doing is I'm using the existing historical record to try to get at sociological questions. And so, that you know, what I'm trying to do with is with history is not ask historical questions, but ask sociological questions. And, and so as maybe kind of hinted at already, you know, the main questions I'm getting at is, you know, why did Britain and America respond at different times? Right. Um, why did they respond in different ways? Right. You know, why a sanitary style in Britain? Why a more quarantine style in the U.S.? And then I guess maybe most importantly, in a way, in a sense, is, you know, how does their responses, uh, their their historical responses, what do they tell us about the contemporary times? You know, and so it's for what I would say is the one thing I'm trying to add is to say that, you know, history is not just in the past, you know, where the history is shaping the present, you know, that we can understand what's happening now, you know, with disease control in Britain and the U.S. by understanding 
their historical record and how their history got us to where we are now. And so I guess, you know, it's, you know, and historians do this as well. I'm not the, I'm not saying that this is unique to comparative historical sociology, but I think one of the things that I am adding is saying, you know, how can the past, you know, the, the social formations of the past, how can they help us understand our current social situations? So let's look at sort of the most contemporary example. So in yeah. the, at the end of the book, you end with the, you call it the past manifested in the present and you end right. with AIDS, SARS, pandemic influenza and Ebola. And of course, now we have COVID-19, right? Yes. <laughs> um, and, it, and, and that is sort of a, a, a great um, case study or example or yeah. not great tragic, a but terrible case relevant case yeah. study or example that has, has materialized since, um, since your, your book was published. Yeah. Um, could you tell us um, how have the U.S. and Great Britain responded to COVID-19? Um, so this is a, certainly this is a, a, a you end your book with, um, you, you call the past manifested in the present and um, with case studies of of uh, AIDS and SARS and Ebola, and now here we have the coronavirus. So, yeah. can you tell us how has um, how have the country's responses to uh, COVID been similar to and different from their public health responses to past epidemics? Yeah, and certainly. So, and I'll, I'll try to give actually two answers in a, in a sense. So, what I would say is that. Um, so in general, you know, in terms of just for the book, uh, it would have been more helpful if there was a kind of like a, a more of a clear difference in how Britain and the U.S. Resp- have responded in, in terms of this outbreak. You know, it, it would have been better just in general, you know, if they had both responded more effectively. Uh, but in terms of the the theory of the book and you know the argument of the book, you know it would have been more useful if you could see a clear difference in terms of how they responded. You know, so for example, you know Brit- Britain responding more effectively, um, whereas the U.S. you know kind of responding less effectively. But that's actually not what we've seen. Um, what we've seen, in some sense, is that both Britain and the U.S. have, to a certain degree, uh, mismanaged their responses to this outbreak. You know, I, I think that's pretty safe to say, you know, that, that they, to have a certain degree, both failed, you know, in terms of their disease control measures in terms of this state. And and, and, and to some degree, it's surprising. Um, you know, America uh, spends millions and millions of dollars on disease control. It has, you know, the you know, biggest organization in the world, you know, the CDC that operates around the world to effectively combat, you know, infectious disease. Um, Britain has a long history of dealing with infectious disease. You know, when uh, things were evaluated in terms of SARS and pandemic influenza, you know, people gave them high marks, even the WHO, you know, commended them for their response. But when it came to coronavirus, they both failed. And so the question then becomes, what, you know, how, you know, how can we understand that they both have kind of produced this kind of mismanaged response, you know, when um, the book suggests that they would have responded in different ways? And so what I would argue is that there there is still a way. So I would argue two things. The first thing I would argue is that there's still there is still a way to see 
the past manifested in the present in their responses to coronavirus. Yes, they have both mismanaged your responses, but to a certain degree, they have mismanaged and failed in different ways uh, that is shaped by their past. So first with Britain, what we see is with Britain, Britain really failed uh, with coronavirus by taking kind of a laissez-faire attitude, particularly at the start of the outbreak. You know, there was this talk of herd immunity, of this kind of idea of just letting people get infected and and then just kind of dealing with the aftermath uh, of of the country and that Britain wasn't going to lock it down or do these other things. But then when the outbreak became so bad, you know, eventually changed course swiftly and, and, and then and then locked it down. And so we see some of this in in the, the past or history of Britain's responses. Right. Britain, even during outbreaks like Ebola or earlier outbreaks, never tried to have border controls, never quarantined people. You know, it took this almost fatalistic approach to um, outbreaks saying that we it's going to happen. Right. If there's an outbreak around the world or in Europe, it's just going to come to Britain. And rather than trying to keep it out, what we should try to do is deal with the aftermath. And I think that's what we see at the start of Britain's response. You know, this this kind of attitude of, of you know, this fatalistic attitude of, okay, the outbreak's going to happen. We just have to kind of let it happen and manage the response, the, the, the domestic response the best we can. It's only after they, they realized that that wasn't working and that their mortality rates were very high um, that and then they closed it down. But you know, they didn't really have... I would argue they didn't really have the skills, the institutional skills to do that effectively. And so, again, that's why they have not been so effective. The U.S. fails in a different way. You know, the U.S. Um, in some sense fails not because it had this fatalistic attitude of, oh, well, it's going to just come in and we have to deal with the aftermath. Rather, in America, the system is in some sense fixated or, or, or um, focused on trying to ensure that an outbreak never happens, right? The idea of quarantine, the idea of border controls and the isolation of the potentially infectious is to keep disease out, is to stop an outbreak from ever occurring. But what has happened and what we see with coronavirus is that was in some sense a futile effort, that it was such a big global pandemic that you were never going to stop it at the border. And so you had this attempt, this idea of, oh, well, we're going to stop it at the border. You know, if you remember, this was what President Trump's, one of his first declarations, one of his first boasts was, oh, well, I shut down travel from China. I shut down travel from Europe. But that was never going to keep this disease out. But the problem was for America that it's so fixated on trying to stop an outbreak from ever occurring that it actually, I think, has devoted less energies to dealing with a domestic uh, damage that an outbreak does when it inevitably does occur, right? We weren't able to keep it out. And actually, we invested so much in trying to do that, that we were, were less able to deal with the aftermath of an outbreak, right? This is what, you know, we don't have a health system that is properly set up to deal with a surge of infectious cases. Uh, we don't have public health messaging and to get people all on board with, say, wearing masks. Uh, we don't have a system uh, that is to deal with uh, the damage that an outbreak like coronavirus 
will do and is doing. Um, and so we were more focused on trying to keep it out uh, than, than to keep it in. So that's my first answer. My first answer is yes, they both failed. Uh, they both um, bungled their responses to coronavirus. But in some sense, they, they failed in different ways. Uh, and their failures are still, to a certain degree, a representation of their past. Okay, that's my first argument. My second argument is kind of a deeper thinking about history and about current events. So the argument of the book is that you have these structures set up. And these structures are historically durable. They persist, they persist, and they will a, they will influence and shape a certain action no matter who the current actor is. You know, if there was a different White House, if there was a different prime minister, you would have still have seen certain things. But I think that that's actually not exactly true. That now what, I'm, what it may, has made me pause and think about is how does... How does history interact with current social circumstances? How does institutions, long historical institutions, how do they interact with the current historical, uh, current actors, right? And so what you see is, you know, the actors matter, right? The, 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 the Trump presidency mattered, uh, the, you know, the, who was in, um, uh, you know, uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson you know, mattered. And so you have this kind of interaction of current events with history uh, and that, you know, you know, they, they both, they both, you know, they both influence each other. So, but a bit, that last thing is so a little bit more. more I've got, yeah, no, no, I've, I've got a couple more, I've got yeah. a couple more questions and one, one has to do with your first answer and one sure. has to do with your second answer. So, yeah. Um, so in, in turn, so another way that you talk about um, the U.S. and British public health systems as being similar but different is in um, this is a a, a very um, academic term, but but biopower. Yes, um, is that they are both coercive forms of biopower. Can you yes. explain a little bit what you mean by that? Um, and sure. then I'm also wondering if you think is biopower necessarily bad and is yeah. maybe one form of biopower in the public health system the you preferable to the other or anyway sure. so so they're both similar and different at, in in the in that they are exercises and you know exercising biopower sure so a, a kind of super brief history of the term so biopower uh, comes from the French theorist Michel Foucault, um, where he says, you know, at some point, you know, over the centuries, the government became interested in managing the bodies of their population, right? That they became interested in having some degree of management, but also a degree of power over the health and, and physical, biological bodies of their citizenry. Um, and he called this biopower. And, you know, there's a long history of this and you know, a lot of, lots of stuff written about that concept of biopower. Um, Foucault, I think, would say, I would say, kind of talked about it in, in a slightly kind of abstract theoretical sense. But the argument of the book is that biopower is actually shaped by historical events and that what we see is that Britain and the U.S. actually have different forms of biopower in terms of infectious disease. 
Um, and so that, you know, the U.S. takes this, I would say, more directly coercive approach to biopower, right? So it sets up kind of legal uh, limits and kind of says, you know, this is what we can do to your body. You know, we can put you in isolation. We can stop you at the border. You know, these are, we, you know, kind of a directly coercive approach to individuals' bodies, right? Whereas Britain um, has taken a more, uh, what I would call subtle or indirect form of biopower. It's still powerful. And to a certain degree, it's still coercive in, in the sense that it shapes people's bodies. Uh, but it's more subtle. It doesn't so much say, you know, we have the legal ability to quarantine you and isolate you, but it's more about persuasion. It's more about public health education. It's more about um, having public health nurses come to your house after your baby is born and suggesting vaccinations. Um, you know, it is more subtle in a certain degree, more indirect, but it's it's still very powerful. And so, again, what I would say is, you know, Britain and America have developed these these different forms of biopower. They're both powerful, um, and they're both to a certain degree coercive in the sense that they they get people to do things the state wants them to do. The question is: Is biopower necessarily bad? Um, no, I mean, <laughs> I think it depends on who you ask, but I would say no. Um, you know, if you, for example, if you want um, people to get vaccinated and some people in the population don't want to get vaccinated, you know, they resist vaccination. Um, what do you do? Uh, both Britain and America in their various ways use forms of biopower to get their, these people who are unwilling or uninterested in vaccination to get them vaccinated. That is a form of biopower. Um, if you ask people who are against vaccination, they will say, yeah, that's not good. Um, if you ask a lot of other people, you know, is it good that the majority of the population be vaccinated? People are going to say yes. And so I would say, you know, biopower is not necessarily bad. It's a form of power that is used by the government. Um, is one form of biopower better than the other? You know, do we want a subtle, indirect form of biopower where the, the, uh, government persuades us and educates us to do certain things with our bodies or do we want the government just to mandate and control our bodies um that's harder to answer and in some sense you know i have my own personal opinion but what the academic in me says is well that's a question up for the research that's a question up for the citizens citizenry you know, it's a question that we as a population have to ask ourselves and, and, and do ask ourselves. And the one thing, and this is what I kind of conclude in the book with, is saying, you know, it's up to us, the citizens, to say what kind of biopower we want. But we have to be careful in what other form of biopower we give the government. And so the whole argument of the book is that, you know, the past forms of biopower are present in the are, are, we see them in the present. But that's also true for the future. Uh, the biopower that we give the government today will exist long into the distant future. And so what I say is, you know, if you give the government the power to quarantine one nurse who comes back from West Africa today, you're not just giving them that power. You're giving them the power to quarantine countless people 
well into the future. And it's during outbreaks that people feel a sense of a crisis and people feel unsafe. And it's during periods of crisis and feeling unsafe that people, the citizenry, are willing to give up, willing to give the government forms of power that they that they ha- they might not otherwise. Um, so the short answer is, I can't say whether one form of biopower is better than the others, but I can say that we should think about it careful, carefully um, as citizens. Well, that brings us to our, our last question about this book. You, um, you had re- recently um, published a, an, an op-ed. Um, at, or in the process um, of publishing, actually. Connecting, well, in, in pub- in, in, or have written an op-ed yes. um, connecting some of these arguments to, to the coronavirus. Um, yes. And this, and this gets, gets back to this question of the past and the present and maybe even into the future. Um, and in your in the op-ed, you conclude we can't change the past, but we can learn to it. We can learn from it, and we can develop more effective ways of dealing with future outbreaks. So, what do you think? Um, what should we learn from the history that you tell in diseased states? And then, practically speaking, in what ways can and should our present-day public health systems change? Yeah. So I would say a couple things. So, so I think the first thing is. When you're dealing with an outbreak, what's important to understand is is not just the disease that you're facing, but what tools you have available on hand. And what I mean by that is that over the last 150 or 200 years, governments, industrialized states like America and Britain have built or created a toolbox with a certain set of tools in them to deal with infectious disease. The toolbox that Britain created is different than the toolbox that America has. And America can't just simply grab the tools from Britain. It, can, it only has the tools that's available in its own toolbox. It's set up in a certain way. And so in some sense, what you have to understand is not just the enemy you're facing, you know, to use that kind of militaristic language, but you also have to use, you also have to understand well, what are the tools that you have at hand that are available for you to deal with this enemy, to deal with this biological threat. So you have to, you also have to understand your history. What can your system do? What can your system of disease control, you know, what is it most effective at? What is it best at doing? So that's, that's the one thing that you, you have to understand, right? Not just the disease you're facing, but what are the tools that you have available to you to face this threat? Um, the second thing I would say is, you know, it's possible to change those tools. You know, it's possible to think about well, what's the what's the outbreaks that you're you're going to be facing in the future. You know, it's not static. It's not just well, you have these tools and that's it. Um, if the world is suggesting that you're going to be facing this new biological threat, maybe it's time to develop some new tools. Um, if America, in the case of America, for example, if global pandemics are going to become more common and it is a futile effort to try to just keep them out. Maybe we need to focus more of our energy on dealing with the damage that an inevitable outbreak of disease is going to do in the future. This is the coronavirus is not the last outbreak that the country is going to face. 
um, there's going to be ones in the future. Um, and maybe now is the time to develop some new tools to, you know, deal with the damage uh, of those outbreaks. So that, you know, less people die. Um, I think that answers well, the question. Yeah. We've taken, I, well, I, yes. I mean, I think we should, if, I think fewer people could, could cert, we could certainly be saving fewer, be saving more people right now, right? Yeah. And some systems changes are in order. Yeah. Um, Alan, we have taken up a lot of your time. I wondered if you could tell us what you're researching now. Sure. Um, so I was doing a few things um, after the book. So I, I got interested in particularly in vaccination. Um, and so the book doesn't deal with so much with vaccination, but I was interested in that. So I did some work on um, comparing how uh, Britain, Australia, and the U.S., um, uh, how they develop their vaccination policies. They have different levels of coercion in their policies. Um, and I was interested in that. And, and I'm thinking a bit about that now uh, when th- in thinking about what, what our country is going to do um, when a uh, coronavirus vaccine, you know, if and when it becomes available, and then how are you going to get people to you know, achieve a high level of you know, high vaccination rate? Um, that's one thing. One, and I, I've been thinking about coronavirus. Obviously, uh, I live in Vermont, um, and Vermont has done surprisingly well. Um, you know, I think it's either the best or second best. It's in, you know one of the best states to respond. And some of that's just its kind of characteristics. It's rural. It has low density. But I think there's also some other explanations for why Vermont has done so well. I'm so interested in that. Um, and then the last thing is that actually I started some research that had nothing to do with infectious disease uh, before this all happened, coronavirus. Um, and that was a, an interview project uh, where I began with um, some students uh, to interview people uh, about their health practices, you know, how they manage their own health, how they think about their health, how they think about their bodies. And how that is shaped by uh, somebody's uh, social economic status, you know. So, do uh, lower socioeconomic status people think about and manage their health in different ways than, say, middle class or you know upper socioeconomic status people? And so, that's kind of the things I'm I'm doing at the moment. Well, those all sound like really interesting and and relevant projects. Yeah. Um, Alan, I'd like to thank you again for taking time to talk to us today. Thank you. It's been great. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.